running amok. Since the day I started volunteering at Triple Z in 2015, I felt the station's obsession with its own past, with what I'll call the golden days. Everyone was there and everyone was having a great time. I think people are just realising how good we really did have it. I'll admit, the golden days sounded pretty bloody good. Friends of mine took a couch along, they put it on the back of the V-Dub and then sat it in the middle of the park. Uh, everyone could do whatever they wanted, smoke what they wanted. <laughs> it was an awesome day in the park. It's fantastic. From the first time I walked into 4ZZZ, I knew it was special. I was reading the news. I got my own show about Australian music. I loved it. I'd found my people. And then somehow, I ended up managing the place. It was a particularly unceremonious entrance to the role, and it was only meant to be temporary. Until it wasn't. It didn't look much from the outside, but it sucked people in quite completely. Despite how much I loved it, I knew the station would struggle unless we could stop looking backwards and start looking to the future. So, aside from our past, what unites us? Brisbane had punk attitude without having to yell and scream to get the message across. I remember coming in for a meeting to say, it was like a save, save the punk show meeting. When I started to ask around, this word punk came up a lot. Is this our rallying point for the future? If it is, what does that word even mean? What does it even sound like? You can sit around and bang on a kettle or look good and get attention. It's always a raging debate over the social media about what's punk and who's punk. And... It was like feeling really frustrated by like how we were being shackled by all these like white guys. We all understand what it is to be sort of a bit weird or different, so we all come together. This is from A to Triple Z an original 4ZZZ podcast series diving into the station's archives to explore the patchwork past, cultural significance and incredible stories of Brisbane Community Radio 4ZZZ. My name's Grace Pashley, and in this episode, I'm trying to understand the glue that's held 4ZZZ together through the good, the bad and the ugly. Oddly enough, my search starts with a Catholic girls' school, The Wiggles, and Expo 88. I now declare World Expo 88 well and truly open. Here's Rachel Cook. Opening of Expo was great. We got to go in before it was actually open and look around um, on the preview day and everything for free. And we thought we were great superstars or something. Rachel got early access with her Catholic Girls School Orchestra. I remember watching the cockroaches play who ended up getting quite big as the Wiggles, didn't they? Were they what were they like pre-Wiggles as, as the cockroaches? Were they still pretty clean cut? Or? Um, yeah, the main singer used to do that big jump in the air. I think that's the energy that got them that Wiggles deal. Because, believe it or not, that deal was being offered around Brisbane at the time. Well, someone approached Beck and said, we're looking for someone to become a children's band. <laughs> we said no. That band was Clag, with Rachel and her friends Beck Moore and Alison Bolger. And Expo 88 was their first gig together. Well, they weren't Clag then. That came later. Clag formed as a, as a reaction to Brisbane music, to us, being bloody boring. That's Beck Moore. Like, we'd go out, 
we'd see bands. Most of them had one-syllable names. That was just the way it was. Now our Clag live to air in the studio. Okay, hello, we're Clagification. No, we're not really Clagification. We're just plain old Clag. I don't know, it just used to give us a shit. And don't be scared because we've got a one-syllable name. We're not like Bud or Crud or Tab or anyone else who has a one-syllable name. We're just Clag. And it got even worse when Nirvana broke because then all the existing bands, well, not all, but 80% of the existing bands and every new band was just trying to copy someone from Seattle. And so while all those other bands did their best Nirvana impression, Clag were banging out songs about chips and gravy on toy Casios and borrowed guitars. I get called punk these days in retrospect, but at the time everyone called us a pop band. Why do you think that is? um, I think the definition of punk perhaps has changed in that in retrospect, it, in retrospect, it's your attitude and antics and things that are remembered rather than the actual music, perhaps. Oh, and they sure had their antics. Because we were already covering the stage with Mr. Men dolls and uh, dressing up in costumes and telling bad jokes between songs, things like that. Oh, we used to have giveaways, ridiculous things like bags of MSG that we'd throw out to the audience, which was all mainly because we didn't actually have 45 minutes worth of music to play, so we just filled it out with weird things that um, our young minds came up with, I guess. But pop or punk or whatever else, Brisbane in the 90s was still too small to be precious about genre definitions and scenes. If you played music at all in this big country town, chances are you'd meet each other and maybe play in each other's bands. This led to some interesting musical cross-pollinations. For a person from 29 Harbert Street, Kenmore, that was the only access I had to music that wasn't top 40 music. Dave McCormack discovered Triple Z in the 80s, where he found a whole new world of music and people, including Beck and Rachel. And he practised with us, he played our first gig with us, which was just a house show, and then gave us our first show at a Custard CD launch. Dave even played with Clagg for a brief stint before starting a new band, Custard. I remember there was a big gig coming up there. I think there was Custard and Clagg were on the same bill. And I was like, oh, I just feel weird, like, playing, you know, before myself as well. <laughs> At the last minute, he said he couldn't play with us because he was in custard. He's got his revenge at all the times we had thrown ice at him on stage. Their reckoning of it is that you pulling out from Clag that night was some kind of ultimate revenge for them heckling custard. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I I found that quite um, flattering in a way. I was a bit envious. It was so liberating. You know, there was a whole mess of toys and instruments and... And Beck snarling into a microphone. It's pretty cool. And pretty punk. But for Beck, punk was always more than just one homogenous sound. It was an attitude. There was one Brisbane band that embodied this attitude for Beck. And it wasn't the Saints. Do dumb things. Dumb things. Like try to please all. It was a band called The Pits. Run into walls. This is like the Brisbane version of punk. 
You know, Brisbane had punk attitude without having to yell and scream to get the message across. It was all about just doing things differently. Perhaps your audience might yell and scream at you or with you. Um, But definitely, Brisbane had its own sound separate to the rest of Australia even. I think we all know that. The epicentre of this sound was 4ZZZ. Rachel and Beck first trotted down to the 4ZZZ studios in Tawong, where we'd been exiled after our eviction from the University of Queensland. The Tawong studio, very, very strange building, um, full of very strange people. And during the search for a more permanent home for the station, there was no shortage of work for people like Beck. But it didn't take Beck very long to go from walking in the door to being... Station manager, finance manager, front desk coordinator, all at once, mind you. I think she held four or five positions at one time. Beck had a lot of energy. I'll give her that. You know, the people who were there every day and some announcers who really cared about the station, all sitting down on the ground in the back room of Tuong and making decisions about, you know, how to go forward. And then there came an offer we couldn't refuse. This used to be the Communist building. By the time 4ZZZ signed the lease in 1992, 264 Barry Parade had seen a lot. And downstairs, which is now the front front office, was a uh, an Irish pub that, you know, they played piccolos and, I don't know, weird little Irish mandolins and stuff and... You'd go down there and have a stout and come back up. Word has it, Beck signed the papers for our new building from hospital after she'd had a serious fall taking the public service exam. But I was on morphine and someone just brought the papers in, laughed at me and said, you've got to sign this shit so that we can move the station. Built by a Bolshevik mechanic in 1936 as an auto parts workshop, the three-storey building in Fortitude Valley became a magnet for left-wing causes. It was perhaps best known as the Brisbane headquarters of the Communist Party of Australia. There was a bit of magic between the Communists and 4ZZZ. <laughs> and as the political fortunes of the Communist Party dwindled, so did their need for the building. This massive asset, so like, well, okay, let's just, you know, give it on to someone else that can use it. The move from Tawong to the Valley was the end of an era and the start of something new. It came at a huge cost, and not just financially. Burnout among volunteers was common and lots of people walked away. But through it all, the station retained a few big traditions. The collective was always interesting. Collective meetings were um, rather chaotic. I think they got to the point of having a talking stick. Since 1975, 4ZZZ had been running as a collective. <laughs> like, collective meetings were full on, you know. In like, what way? Well, there's a lot of people and they all, you know, have their opinion. So we would hear everybody's opinion and you'd just work out the right way to go. An inherently anti-establishment and maybe even punk way of running an organisation. No central figurehead, but a group of people working together to make stuff happen. Any subscriber could even come along. Not many really did. Um, some, some announcers would bring their mates. People would drop in and read the minutes. You know, we had the minute book. People would just drop in all the time and read the minutes. They wanted wow. to know what was going on. 
It wasn't all serious, though. Occasionally, maybe there'd be a bucket bong in the room where we had our staff meetings. The most dedicated members of the organisation would meet once a week to decide on all manner of operational things. Some decisions were not so big. We had a massive couple of collective meetings deciding where we sit on Silverchair, should we be promoting the gig. And others had more of an impact, like whether punk music should still be considered specialist music and have its own time slot. Hey, uh, Richard from The On News was... Uh, who was a Triple Z announcer. Chris Converse wears his punkness on his sleeve. Or rather he would if he ever wore sleeves. He was he was came to this party and he said, oh, we're we'll you know, discussing music and looking through what I had on you know, record. He's got this huge bleach blonde mohawk, always in a band t-shirt with the sleeves cut off. And as per his moniker, walking around in a busted pair of Converse high tops. When I first met him, I was pretty intimidated. I thought, wow, this is what Triple Z really looks like. Turns out he's lovely. He first got involved with the station co-hosting, you guessed it, the punk show in the 90s. A new wave of punk came through, you know, like um, there was a big explosion again of punk around the world. and uh, Punk was getting mainstream. So a lot of shows were playing that music and um, uh, the Triple Z people at the time were like, well, we don't really need the punk show because so much punk is getting played across the station anyway. <laughs> and I remember coming in for a meeting to say, like, it was like a save the uh, save the punk show meeting. A few other people came in and back up and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was a, pr- a pretty uh, you know, different moment for Triple Z and, and myself. The collective decided the punk show could stay. It also drove the other big tradition that had survived from UQ, market days. And these smaller festivals are going to give the people what they want, and what they want is something fucking new. Everyone was there and everyone was having a great time. Every year, a core group of four Triple Z volunteers, powered by the collective, would put on a major music festival to raise money for the station. It always had a uh, community village feel to it. Four Triple Z market days were a melting pot of the different subcultures and scenes of Brisbane. Everyone could feel part of it, I think, and know that they were helping to support Triple Z, which was one of the main reasons people actually went. The fact that there was good music and everything else was a bonus, really. You'd get a mix of all corners of alternative Brisbane, relishing the chance to get together in a comfortable space and listen to music they couldn't get anywhere else. Well, of course you had your amazing goth that somehow did not melt in the sun, which is still a mystery how they managed that. Uh, Morrowhawks that were two feet high, mixed in with lots of people with flannies, of course. <laughs> Guys with long hair, um, rude girls, even probably even oh, sharpie types. I had this singlet that had this illustration of a punk with a bright pink uh, an orange mohawk and I wore that <laughs> and then I went and stood near some real punks and I felt a bit silly but you know <laughs> Sam Kretschmann's dad took her along to her first market day back when they were held at UQ Sam became a key organiser of a special part of the market days the doof tent when people get on and off stage they don't whack their heads 
might get some bubble wrap too because it's gonna happen. <laughs> this is the doof tent. It's not a tent. It's a doof truck. There'd be a ton of collective meetings to decide on the key points of market day, and the collective hashed out the lineup every year. All of the bands had to um, send in a tape. So you had to apply by sending in a tape. That was the protocol. But of course, we'd be trying to find interstate bands all along, you know, so we'd all just sit around. Who do we like? When you call people interstate, did they know what Market Day was? Did they know who Triple Z was? Yeah, yeah, definitely had a reputation. Market Days were one of the main ways the station made money to pay the bills. In the beginning, they were free. And the station took the bar income. And of course you um, will get in free to Market Day if you're a subscriber as well. Yep. And And you also get cheap, cheap alcohol. Cheap beer. The return wasn't too bad. Initially, you'd, you'd, we'd too, still, even with the risk management people, we're still making about 50k, clearing 50k right. plus, uh, thereabouts. As festivals became more regulated, the cost of putting the event on went up. Eventually, Triple Z had to start charging a ticket fee to keep it profitable and keep the station going. Even then, it was about five bucks and only to non subscribers. And then we're always just hedging the bets of, well, to, to cover our costs and, you know, now we had to pay 15k for risk assessment, we've we got to put the, you know, the gate fee up, you know, to 10 bucks. Peter Oweda was one of the main organisers for Market Days in the mid to late 90s. You know, so you sort of had to put things up and then that takes away the crowd. So, oh, I'll pay five, I'm not going to pay 10 bucks. Ah, so, <laughs> so it's too much. So, uh, yeah, slowly the fees are creeping up. It's, oh, should we still keep it free for subs kind of thing. And, and yeah, well, it has to be free for subs, but does it have to be? It wasn't just the dollar value that contributed to the huge cost of the event. It was a mammoth organisational task undertaken totally by volunteers. But during the golden age of market days, all this hustle was worth good it. to see people outdoors having a good time, relaxing in Brisbane where sometimes you don't get a chance to do that. At market days, you could pretend the outside world didn't exist. Until the year the outside world came riding in on horses. The 96 market day began like any other. So once again, we we had a massive lineup, lots of bands, great artwork, great promotion. It was big, almost as probably as big, if not bigger than the the one the year before, because it was just had this momentum, like you know festivals. Anything that has energy and momentum is going great. So once again, we probably had roughly almost 10,000 people there again. But there were dark clouds on the horizon. A thunderstorm was brewing over Brisbane and the thousands of punters settling in for a night of live music and partying at market day. I remember as we were walking out to the car, just seeing a few riot cops milling around and thinking, what are they doing? But when the rain started, everyone just ran for the tents and stuff and the police used that... um, furore as a way to an excuse to come in they said that the market day was a riot or something because people were running around communication broke down sometime in the afternoon and we just didn't feel like yeah things were looking scary in that front let alone on the front that a thunderstorm was coming through it was standard procedure for four triple z to employ security and a few police officers for crowd control at market days and over the years we'd built up a rapport with the local constabulary but this time round, a low-ranking officer was put in charge. Tensions rose. The battle lasted more than an hour. I think it actually started because boys were peeing on the fence or something. In the rain, I don't think it really mattered. <laughs> on one side, scores of police armed with batons and riot shields. On the other, hundreds of concertgoers running to get out of the rain swept up in a storm of violence. What, what sparked um, a phone call to say, you know, not, not just send the police, send 
every available uh, <laughs> service you can to uh, shut this thing down, you know. And, uh, and, and I think the more they turned up, the more it incited people to, uh, to rally against them, you know, and fight against them. Even the military police turned up. The official line was that they just happened to be in the area when the call for help went out. My dad rang me. He'd seen it on the news. He said, what's going on? The, the army's in there beating you guys up. <laughs> Whatever excuse they had, they did not hold back. They really just marched in and baddened anyone that got in their way. There's a history of friction between the independent radio station and police. It was the biggest clash between 4ZZZ and the police since the Joe Bjorki peterson era. And the spectre of brutality under Joe's reign still lingered. It's the thing, I mean, I, I saw the, the horses all rolling, you know, and the, the cops on the horses, and I was just like, I can't believe this is happening, you know. Was, you know, riding through the rain and dragging people out by their, you know, by their, by their shoulder or the hair or whatever, and you were just like, you know, and everyone's covered in mud and, you know, soaking wet. It wasn't actually that surprising, really. I mean, everyone was in shock at the violence of it, but I don't think anyone was that surprised that the police did it. It was just the sort of thing that the police did still. Organisers claimed some people were trampled into the ground under the police horses, but police say they were set upon after trying to break up scuffles. The Triple Z newsroom kicked into action straight away, informing listeners the next day of what happened, as well as providing advice to those who'd been arrested and get a medical certificate or some report from him stating your injuries, as well as getting photographs of the bruising to your arms. If you can say one thing about Triple Z, it's that we know how to pull together in a crisis. It was all hands on deck. Today, the job of cleaning up the park, as concert organisers consider a formal complaint to the CJC. Ultimately, the station did make a complaint to what was then called the Crime and Justice Commission. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it went nowhere. Or in the words of the CJC report, no adverse conclusions could be drawn against any of the officers, and the general complaint about the use of force was dismissed as neither excessive nor unreasonable. Maybe if 4ZZZ hadn't been fighting to survive our whole lives, an event like this might have felt like a threat to our existence, rather than par for the course. But market days continued for a whole decade after the 96 Cybernana riot. But the festival landscape was changing. At a collective meeting post-mortem of the 98 market day, Peter painted a sombre picture. The event looks like it cost us $106,000 dollars Oh no, we're ruined! The bar took a lowly $64,000. Wah, wah, wah. It's down 20 grand in last year. So, taking to the whole event around about $125,000. So it's only about 19 grand. By 2002, that margin had shrunk even further. We'd barely broke even, with a cool $928 in profit. It really seemed like the end of days. Well, technically, the real last market day was the one at Davies Park at West End, the big one. For Sam, 2002 was the last real market day. Because it cost like 200 grand and there's just no way that we could risk 200 grand for the station. If it rained, you know, heaps of people just don't turn up. People buy the ticket on the day and, um, and that's, that's the station not being able to pay its bills. Things were not looking good for this station tradition. The turn of the century would cast out over the future of the 4ZZZ collective too. Sort of, we were meeting and, and discussing 
board matters, you know, governance. Peter went from being the station manager to a board director in the late 90s. And, and then it's like, well, collectors making decisions and collective was making decisions around the same things as well. It was another period of high turnover of people at the station and it was getting harder to fill a room with dedicated collective members. And then eventually collective was happening once a fortnight. This core mechanism of how decisions were made was steadily changing. Well, we can't wait a fortnight to decide if we're going to promote Silverchair or not. We need to make a decision now. We can't take it to, you know. And that was kind of when there was a cultural shift away from the collective being the, the decision-making body for the organisation. It was hard to imagine a station without the pillars of the collective in market day and there was a push to keep them going. By this stage, a new generation of artists were moving to Brisbane and learning about the station. I think uh, the earliest that came into 4ZZZ was was when I was still with French horns. That's Brisbane musician Matt Kennedy. When we come in and and do uh, interviews, I I always thought it was a really big deal, like, oh, wow, going to be on the radio. I'd tell my grandparents to tune in, and uh, they would, and they'd be like, oh, grandson's on the radio. And... um, so that was always my relationship. I think French Horns even played a, a 4 Z market day um, at the uh, showgrounds. Matt's band played one of the last market days. It was a solid lineup with lots of big Brisbane acts. Even Dave McCormack played with his solo project. I remember that that um, vibe. It was like uh, it was the first year there, and um, so everyone was still kind of working out how to how to make it work. And I just remember it was, it was in the in those big. Um, warehouses with uh, just concrete floors and I think we played really early we were put on at like uh, barely midday and um, and so not not many people had arrived yet and uh, yeah we did we played and um, yeah it was it was what it was. (laughs) These market days were a far cry from the village feel of those held in public parks in the early 90s. They'd stop being annual and drop back to whenever we could afford it. Yet we persisted. I I had a feeling that it was maybe um, an attempt to get back the um, the, com- the camaraderie, the collective vibe, to get everybody working on something together again, and I totally understand that. The old guard of market days in the collective were leaving, and they attempted to give parting wisdom to the new guard, but essentially... We pretty much just dropped the ball and walked away <laughs> and let her have a go at it. So, I, I mean, you know, poor woman, I don't, I, I don't know... There were, yeah, and without keeping the collective going, she had no, um, no support network. If we weren't rallying around the collective or organising a giant festival, who were we? The last market day was held on Saturday, October 21, 2006, at the RNA showgrounds. It exists now only as warm memories, fragmented clips on YouTube and other ephemera on the internet. You know, it was quite a big deal to kind of be asked to play one. It was like, oh, wow, you know, it's kind of, it's like an acknowledgement that um, that you're a part of the Brisbane music landscape. The end of market days was hard to come back from. It left a real remember the 90s man attitude among volunteers at the station, something I really struggled with as the manager. I thought, so what about the 90s? What about the future? There's got to be more than fond memories holding this station together. So what's the glue? I kept going back to Clagg. Clagg had always been this kind of mysterious sort of cult band because they'd broken up or they hadn't been around Brisbane, you know, for many years. But um, there were a couple of videos on YouTube. Uh, There's a video of them playing the 1992 4ZZZ Market Day where uh, Clagg goes off at the crowd and it's really awesome. Get a haircut yourself. 
Matt went on to host a program called Underground Australiana in the 2010s. In fact, it was his interview with Beck that features throughout this podcast. It would turn out to be one of her last at the station. She sadly passed away in 2016. Matt agrees with Beck's definition of Brisbane punk. Basically just be as honest as possible about it. You know, don't put on a, a silly voice or um, just uh, yeah, be anything that you're not. Just kind of passionate and, and integrity. And I think that's the punk attitude. If Clagg was stretching the definitions of what could be called punk in the early 90s, nearly 30 years later, Zed announcer and DJ Sarah Scott, aka Sezo Snot, was proving that punk is more than loud guitars and mohawks. Then I sort of ended up taking over that slot and, and started playing a lot of the underground kind of hip-hop that I was starting to get really interested in and a lot of the, the club music that... I started to get into a bit more. The music is punk, it's raw, it's made by kids with nothing um, who've been disenfranchised. You definitely wouldn't hear what Cesar was playing on the punk show, but it came from the same place of rebellion and oppression. Starting to question a lot of the, the, white, the, the white boys in control in sort of punk and indie at the time. And then us, you know, maybe, yeah, it's the station getting back to its core values. And despite being initially like a bit in shock about what the hell's going on here, this like random booty DJ. <laughs> it didn't take long for people to come around to what Cezo was doing. And also I think 4ZZZ helped me a lot too to realise that like we do fit in here in terms of the core values of punk. And, and there's a place for us here more than there is anywhere else. Cezo was one of the first people I met when I started at 4ZZZ. And like Converse, initially I was intimidated. All these people had this confidence about them. They really knew who they were and what they stood for. If I reflect, being on the air, it lent it some credibility and gave me the space to think about things critically. And you have an excuse to to take what you're doing seriously and, and spread the good word, really. So it's always, to me, it's been about being able to stand up and uh, whether it's through the, the music you're listening to or, or for Triple Z and uh, having a voice on Triple Z. I guess like the station really did bring us all together. Young misfits and punks of all shapes and sizes are still like moths to Triple Z's flame. Eventually, we all find our way here. We all found each other because of some little signal we were giving and and Triple Z was um, definitely giving a big signal across the airways. We both had sort of found our people because in Brisbane you just turned on Triple Z and you discovered the most amazing music in the world and especially from your own city. And while some of us get stuck in the golden days, most of us are sticking around for the bright future. The spirit of 4 Triple Z as a Brisbane institution that drives people towards it. Well, we're, we're a community, aren't we? We're a family. We have to find each other and help each other. We all understand what it is to be sort of a bit weird or different, so we all come together. Isn't that what it is? This podcast was produced across the lands of the Turrbal, Jagara, Yagara and Yugambeh people, and we acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands was never ceded. This episode was produced by me, Grace Pashley. I'm a former station manager at 4 Z, and I'm also the executive producer of this series alongside Max Rowley. Sound design and theme production by Lucinda McAfee. A giant thanks to the volunteers of 4 Z who did a ton of archiving work in 2010, digitising reels and reels of tape kept in the basement filing cabinets of 4 Z. 
The music you heard in this episode is from Clag, Kitchen's Floor, The Onyas, The Pits, and a bunch of other excellent Brisbane bands. Thanks for letting us fill this episode with Brisbane music. Go look all of those bands up and support them. This podcast has been produced to tell some of our stories for our 45th birthday. If you like what you hear and you want to support the survival of independent media and community radio, you can visit the links in the show notes to make a donation, buy some merch, or even subscribe. That's all from us for now. Make sure you go back and listen to all of the other episodes of From A to Triple Z. Bye.